Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our visitors. If you haven't been here before, uh, we appreciate you showing up and hope you'll enjoy the service and get something from it. Let's go over a few announcements, if we would. To begin with, Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Uh, we have gifts for you as you leave in a little basket. I kind of looked into the basket, and I don't know what the ladies were thinking, but it's deodorant. <laughs> I don't know what they had in their minds, but uh, be of good cheer and accept one and, and take it home. So there'll be no service tonight. Uh, enjoy the time with families and that, uh, whatever you're going to do. Uh, choir is suspended for the summer. But if you have any talent you'd like to share with us musically, uh, please see Jared for that. Uh, prayer meeting again Wednesday at 7 p.m. Please come out. There's strength in numbers when we pray. And the fellowship is also very, very good. Uh, number seven is uh, nursery workers. Uh, we're, of course, changing children's ministry program. They need uh, a couple of more volunteers. Uh, so see Jolene if you're interested in that endeavor. Days of Praise booklets, Acts of Facts, they're in the vestibule up front. SGBA Family Conference uh, begins this Thursday through Saturday. Uh, Jared and Pastor will be attending that. So uh, if you have any uh, interest in helping with, uh, with the travel expenses or any of that, uh, please uh, see Laura or Jared. Check your local calendar sheet available on the front pew. Uh, activities. That's the, the activities. What did we do last week? Was it a movie? Movie out? Yeah, uh, yeah. Party night. Any, did anybody go to that? There were 18 of us there. 18. Good turnout. Yeah, it was fun. Good. What was the movie? Uh, Incredibles 2. Oh. It was fun. Kids. Kids Adults enjoy it as well as the kids? Uh, yeah, we were all <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Uh, our nursery is doing a makeover. Uh, we're in the process of that. Uh, Dan and Jess are kind of leading the charge on that. If you, again, have an interest in helping out with that or helping defray the, the cost and expenses. Uh, where are you buying the stuff from? Amazon? A lot of the uh, materials uh, for it, or yeah, this, the um, the paint and the construction stuff for, for the bathroom we got from you know. And how how, uh, how far are we from being done? Do you think are we like seventy percent uh, or eighty percent done? Yeah, or? it's probably about seventy percent. We're gonna try to buy some of the um, baby equipment that we need through squats like and stuff. So okay. I'm on there every day. So once. Once again, folks, if you're interested in helping out with that, please see Jess, just to make it uh, short and sweet there. Okay. Our scripture for meditation today is taken from page 826 in the Red Hymnal. It's going to be a responsive reading. Page 826, and it's Psalm 112. 
And if you folks will stand with us as we go through this. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Amen. Please be standing. Remain standing for opening prayer. Jim, would you lead us in prayer this morning? Gracious God, Remain standing. Good morning. Um, I was asked to pitch it for Andrea today, so um, our first hymn is 556 in the hymnal. 556 in the hymnal. <coughs>
you. You may be seated. Okay, it's time for congregational pick. Um, I saw Andrew and Mercy. Why don't we do Mercy today? Oh, did Mercy do it last time? All right, Andrew. 202 in the hymnal. 202. Okay, why did you pick this one, Andrew? Because he likes the song. You like what? Amazing Grace. That's right, it's a classic. All right. <clears throat> The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, <coughs> verses 7 through 12. 
It would be page 1505 in your pew Bible. When you find it, if you would please stand as, as we read it together. given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. May the Lord add his blessing to this holy and inspired scripture. Remain standing and turn to 535 in the hymnal. 535, <coughs> the brown hymnal. <coughs>
As we come to our study, let us pray. Thank you, Lord and Savior, for fine Christian homes. Mothers and fathers who have taught us the truth of God's word and have set the example for us, firstly, in their own lives, and then secondly, in seeing to it that we as their children were exposed to the preaching and teaching of God's word, where going to church was a family affair, not simply something that the parents sent the kids off to do. We thank you, Lord, for that example. Pray that you will bless us in our study today as we think of the fathers, the fathers that are here this morning and listening out on the airwaves concerning the whole responsibility we have to be godly fathers and to set the example in our homes by our behavior and by not just what we say, but primarily by what we do. If there's anything that uh, is a glaring hypocrisy in our lives, our children will see it, and they will zone in on it, and they will know if we're true or fake. Lord, make us true. We pray for the glory of Savior and that the gospel be not besmirched or ridiculed because of the things in our lives. But may we be a light to firstly to our families and then to the watching world. In Jesus' name, we pray these things with thanksgiving. Amen and amen. <clears throat> My father was drunk most of the time when I was a child. And in his drunken stupor, he would beat me with anything he could get his hands on. I was often sexually abused by him when mother was not around, and eventually, once all the money was gone, he up and left me, my brothers, and mom, and we never saw him again. I hate my father. The woman who told me this many years ago went on to say that when she heard preaching on God, as father, she had a difficult time conjuring up anything positive about him as a father since her own earthly father had been such an evil and abusive man. Which brings us to this important distinction. <clears throat> Do we take our definition of fatherhood from men and then predicate it to God? Or do we begin with God to determine what a father should be and apply it to man? Well, surely it ought to be the latter. This young woman, then in her 20s, was taking her definition of fatherhood from man, from her own bad experience, with her dad. Surely this was her great error. Sin ruins fatherhood as surely as it ruins everything else it touches 
And so our starting point in discussing what a father is or should be like is not the man who is our father, not even someone whom we know as father among men, but our starting point must be God himself. So God becomes the model. He becomes the measuring stick by which we evaluate fathers in fatherhood. As men, we fall short, way short of God as the standard. But nonetheless, we profit from the comparison because we see what we should be and what we can be in some measure by the empowering grace of God. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. God is a father versus earthly fathers. <clears throat> and hopefully draw out <clears throat> some appropriate applications. The text before us obviously draws contrast between men and God, between earthly fathers and father God. And it is in the contrast where we discover something of the glory of God and his superiority as a father to his people. The text is from the teachings of Jesus when he spoke on the mount. And who better to explain to us the fatherhood of God than his own beloved son? That one who has been with the father eternally, never separate from his presence or power except at the cross, deigns to tell us, his people, what it will be like having God as our father. The passage begins by dealing with prayer, though the word prayer is not mentioned once in the text. Instead, Jesus talks about asking, seeking, knocking, verse 7. And the import is clarified in verse 11 where Jesus says, How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Prayer to God from Jesus' perspective is not phrasing words in carefully constructed religious tones, using pious-sounding expressions with eyes closed, hands folded, all of that. No, prayer is conversation with God and conversational in tone, in word, in posture, because for Jesus, prayer is talking to one's father. We do not have to assume a certain formal protocol when talking to a father. We just talk to them. We ask questions. We give input. We listen to explanations. We're generally at ease unless we know we have somehow irritated dad. Prayer should be like this. Well respectful, yes, but not, not canned. Not words we think God wants to hear. Not memorized words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What is commonly called the Lord's Prayer was never meant to be. 
said as the prayer to God. It's a model of an outline of how we are, the things to include in our prayers. No, our words are just to be natural, heartfelt expressions as we talk to God. Now, as we look into this text more deeply, it becomes clear that Jesus is dealing with a misconception of God. And that misconception being that God is somehow, he is somehow less a father than human fathers. That God is so stern, he is so austere, he is so distant or that God is so far above his creatures in power, wisdom, and knowledge that he cannot, or worse, will not, do kind and good things for them when they ask. Thus God is portrayed, at least in the thoughts of some, as being niggardly and stingy and uncaring and removed and indifferent to his children, or the classic one, he's just too busy, too busy. Again, this is an unflattering caricature of God, which men have made up. They've made it up, but they've not sought to know God from his own words. They've just assumed some things based upon distortions of the truth. <coughs> well, in this text, Jesus sets, sets out to correct this false image by asking a series of questions. Great teaching model here. Verse 9. Which of you, you can tell, he's talking to the people, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or, second question, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? Think about this. Bread and fish were the staple diet of the people of Jesus' day. When Jesus fed the 5,000, later again, the crowd of 4,000, he fed them what? Bread and fish. Jesus' own disciples, you will remember, made their living by being fishermen. So we could aptly apply Jesus' words like this, if your child asks you as a father to give him or her something to eat because they're hungry, would you give your children a non-edible, like a stone, mocking their need? Or even something venomous and deadly like a snake, something that would endanger their life? Well, we recoil at such a notion. How absurd. What kind of a father would do a thing like that, we say? Only a monster would treat his children that way. And yet, Jesus' point is that we think of God in this way sometimes. When we assume that he is less a father to his children than we are to ours. Spurgeon writes this. A king is sitting with his council deliberating on high affairs of state involving the destiny of nations when suddenly he hears the sorrowful cry of his little child falling down, fallen down or frightened by a wasp. 
He rises. He runs to his relief. He assages his sorrows and relieves his fears. Is there anything unkingly here? Is it not most natural? Does it not even elevate the monarch in your esteem? Why then do we think it dishonorable to the king of kings, our heavenly father, to consider the small matters of his children? It is definitely condescending, but is it not also superlatively natural that being a father, God should act as such? Wow. Spurgeon nailed it. Jesus applies the scenario even more pointedly because his purpose in asking us as fathers about our response to the simple request of our children for food is this, verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more but those words just kind of sink in. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? There's a tendency in our day to make man the measure of all things. And in the religious realm to define God as we want him to be. So he best fits our own idea of God. That's the whole purpose. We must be careful that our concept of God does not become our God. What we think God is, is not nearly so important as discovering who and what God is, as he reveals himself to be in the Holy Scriptures. And Jesus is arguing that if evil men can do good things for their children, how much more will a good and gracious God give good gifts to his children? The underlying question is this. Is God less a father than evil men? Is God less a father? As I said earlier, there is a movement in our day to make God like men. And in many cases, worse than men. I have a book in my library called Pagans in the Pew by Peter Jones, a professor of Westminster, my seminary. And the theme of the book is the neo-Gnosticism, which is everywhere present in our country in everything from Disney films to the radical feminist movement. They call it neo-Gnosticism because it's just a revitalization, new but not so new, of old Gnosticism from centuries past. The Gnostics were people in the New Testament age who believed in the superiority of knowledge over all things. That's what gave Gnostics their name. It's from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. They worshipped at the shrine of Sophia. Oh, that's a lovely name, Sophia. What does that mean? It means wisdom. 
So they worshipped at the shrine of Sophia. And they believed that Sophia, or wisdom, came to them innately apart from any study in book learning. Wisdom to the Gnostic was not from God, but it was God. It was God. The real God behind the biblical God. So in the account of creation, the hero of the story is not God who laid down the restrictions to Adam and Eve. The real hero Get it now. The real hero is the serpent who wanted Adam and Eve to possess the knowledge of good and evil and encourage them to eat of the forbidden fruit so they could really become one with God. And in this reconstruction of the biblical narrative, God is the bad guy. Because he was withholding a good thing from his creatures, Satan becomes the hero because he taught mankind how to experience all there is to know, both good and evil. To suggest that knowledge or wisdom is above God rather than emanating from God is to deify human wisdom above God himself and to reconstruct God as we wish him to be, not as he reveals himself to be. But man always does that. This was happening in Jesus' day. Men began to view themselves as better fathers than God and to measure God by their own puny displays of kindness and generosity to their children, And so Jesus is showing that God is no less a father than men. And in fact, he is the standard of fatherhood by which all men will be judged. Ooh, that's a sobering thought, isn't it, dads? We're going to be judged by the fatherhood of God as the standard. So that's the second point in your outline, the superiority of God as father. With early earthly fathers, generally we become fathers through the natural reproductive process. And the children we sire are not the result of choice, but of procreation. Oh yeah, I know. In today's genome experiment, you can choose the sex of your child. <coughs> they think you can choose intellect. <coughs> But you really can't. And things like moral character and behavior or personality are things that cannot be chosen. But God, when we read the scripture, chooses to become a father, and not only so, but he chooses the people he desires for his children. Wow. This is the biblical doctrine of adoption. And one we understand little about. Paul tells us of God. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Ephesians 1 verse 5. 
You say, well, that's nothing new. We have adoption in our day. Well, again, I'll say to you, let's not get the cart before the horse. God's adoption precedes anything invented by men. We take our cue from God, not from us. And what is so unique about God's adoption is this. The people he chose to become his children comprise the most reprehensible people on the face of the earth, the most wicked, the most egotistical, belligerent, God-hating, blasphemous, and unruly sinners that ever were, the riffraff, the dregs of society. You say, wow, where are you getting all of that? Well, this is pictured in God's description of Israel as his chosen people. Let me read it for you. It's from Ezekiel 16, verse 3 and following. God says, your ancestry, speaking of Israel now, your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Oh, Canaanites, what do we know about them? Not very good people, pretty bloody, warriors, barbarians. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. On the day you were born, Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean. You were not rubbed with salt, that's for healing purposes. You weren't wrapped in claws. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field. For in the day you were born, you were despised. Now, God is saying here to Israel, you were, you were like an aborted and discarded and unwanted child. When you were born, they just threw you out in the field to let you die. He goes on. Then I, I passed by. God is speaking here. Then I passed by, and I saw you kicking in your blood as you lay there in your blood. And I said to you, Live! Live! I made you grow like a plant in the field, and you grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. You can read the rest of the text. Ezekiel 16 is a wonderful text. What is he saying? God chose for his people not, not the most attractive, well-bred, influential, powerful nation in the world, but rather an aborted child of a nation which no one wanted and which had been left to die on its own. You know, that's been kind of Israel's history, if you think about it. Always fighting just to exist despised by all the nations. It's a little country. Look on the map. A little country on the east side of the Mediterranean. And behind it is Arabia. Below it is Egypt. What's to despise about little Israel? Apparently everything. By the way, the New Testament description is no less humbling. Writes Paul to the Corinthian Christians, Brothers, 
I want you to think of what you were when you were called. And he's talking about when they were called by God to become Christians. I want you to think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak, the lowly, the despised, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. He's saying it's because of God that you're a Christian. You need to remember that. You're nobodies. You had no political or moral clout to who and what you were. These are the people that God adopts into his family. You say, well, there, there are adoptive parents who adopt children who have birth defects or mental impairments. That's true. But God and did, and he does more. Romans 5 describes God sacrificing his only begotten son for the adoptive sons and daughters. Who does that? God demonstrated his own love for us. We read in this. That while we were still sinners. Lawbreakers. Christ died for us. No earthly father does this. Oh there's more. Paul goes on to say. We were God's enemies. When we were reconciled to him. Through the death of his son, verse 10. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. So we've got sinners, enemies, ungodly. Oh, wow, what a prize. It's not just that God adopted children who were not the brightest light bulbs in the package. People who had some physical or mental infirmity. No, he adopted people who were ungodly enemies, violently opposed to him in every way, who would kill God if they could, could and rid him from their lives. That's who he saves. Wow. That kind of reduces our pride, doesn't it? It should. If we're adopted into Christ's family by God the Father, if we're adopted into his family by God himself, then is God the Father of all men without distinction? No. Can't be. There are some religious groups which speak often of the fatherhood of God and the Brotherhood of men, by which they mean that God is the Father of all humanity, and all humanity comprises a brotherhood in which we share alike the privileges and responsibilities of being the children of God. Now they arrive at this conclusion by confusing God's position as creator with his position as father. God created all men, so yes, of course, he is the father of all men. That's the way they think. But the designation father is a term of relationship. 
It's not a term of generation. And God himself is careful to maintain the two distinctions. In the Matthew 5 text, verse 43 and following, Jesus is instructing his disciples to love their enemies and not just those who love them in return. And the motivation for doing this is that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And then to illustrate how loving one's enemies can occur, notice what Jesus says about God. God, he, causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 45. So here is God, active in his creative role, governing the elements of sun and rain so that all of his creation, including the wicked, as well as the righteous, they're all sustained. And then the passage closes with an appeal to love one's enemies as the creator demonstrates his love for humanity through his kindnesses. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And God has identified to his people as Father, yes whereas he is identified to the world as creator. We do the same thing. The woman whose story I opened with this morning, who had an abusive father, said to me, he is no father to me. What was she saying? She was saying, He may have a biological connection to my existence, but he's not my father. Why would she say that? Well, she told me. Because there was nothing in the relationship which fathers do. That's why. There was no guardianship. There was no care from him. There was no nourishment from him. No kindness, no compassion, no respect, no love. Don't call him my father. He's not my father. He's never been my father. Thus the same. God is creator of all. That's true. But he's father only of those children whom he adopts. And all adoptions are through Jesus, let me read it for you, through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Ephesians 1 verse 5. And John put it pointedly saying, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Wow. (laughs) Whoever acknowledges the Son, he has the Father also. 1 John 2 verse 23. It's a package deal or not at all. If you have the Son, you have the Father. If you don't have the Son, eh, you can talk all day about loving God, knowing God, God loves you. It ain't so. The second way God is superior to Father is that all of his gifts to his children flow from his moral purity, whereas earthly fathers are morally corrupt. Jesus in our text acknowledges that earthly fathers do give good gifts to their children. It's the outgrowth of love. 
But in admitting this, he also states the moral position of every earthly father, which is, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts. So the gifts flow from fathers who are evil morally. That is to say, they're inwardly corrupt. Something we are by nature, something we are by practice, and that's a hard pill for fathers or mothers, for the case may be, to swallow, but it's very true. We are what we are. There's not a father among us this morning who has always acted towards their children in a godly and a spiritually kind way. We're selfish. We're self-centered, sometimes overly angry, sometimes overly picky, highly demanding, sometimes too lenient. We shout, do little. We put our children off when they need us to hear and just sit and listen. On and on and on we could go. The list, the list is long and colorful. And honest fathers know this about themselves. And then there are those fathers in our day who are like those monsters to whom Jesus made allusion. If their starving children asked them for bread, they would give them a stone shaped like a loaf of bread to mock them. Or a snake to bite them. There are cruel men in roles as fathers who are not worthy of the name, let alone the position of father but of God the father there is no moral impurity or monstrosity God always gives good gifts to his children never tempting them with evil never exasperating their faith with cruel teases never provoking us to anger though he becomes angry with God because of our own sinful Misunderstandings of his workings. His gifts are above what we ask or think. He himself thinks up ways to bless us beyond our puny asking, seeking, and knocking at his door. Before we even pray, Jesus says... Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew 6, verse 8. Wow. You mean he's, he's that attentive to us? I don't even have to state it in a prayer? Well, he does want us to pray because he wants the communion. How are we going to be sustained in life during bad economics and war-torn natures in the nations and poverty and disease? Jesus answers, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Look at the birds of the air. Do they do not sow or reap or store away in the barns? Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Matthew 6, verse 25 and 26. John 16, verse 23. In that day, the glorification of Christ after resurrection. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything, says Jesus. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. You don't need to go asking me, go talk to your Father about me. You can ask him yourself. Roman Catholicism has not figured that out yet. And there is more. There is so much more. We're loved by the Father. John 14, verse 27. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And this love puts us on a personal basis with God, so much so that Jesus told his disciples, I am not saying that I will ask the Father. You can talk to him yourself. We're known or owned of God the Father. Jesus told Mary Magdalene at the tomb, Go! Go to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father. Whoa. To my God and your God. John 20, verse 17. In a world of false professions of faith, fake Christians and the like, Paul told Timothy, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. It's sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. 2 Timothy 2 verse 19. In other words, you and I are not lost in a sea of nameless, faceless identities who comprise the millions of people who live on earth. No. God has sealed you for his own and he knows and owns every child he has adopted. That's how precious you are to God. He does more. He has granted wisdom and knowledge, the wisdom and knowledge of God and his workings, things that remain a mystery to the world. Paul's assured prayer request, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, who gave you spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Yeah. Ephesians 1, verse 17. And I would commend to you to read the whole text. It's just wonderful. Read Ephesians 1. God cannot and he does not give bad gifts to his children. He's always loving, always wise, always on top of things, always there to meet your every need as his child. Oh, and by the way, it sometimes happens there's no distinction between the adoptive child and the uniquely begotten. Do you know that? Jesus is our brother, and he owns us as such, and God treats us as such. And then finally, God is a superior father because he's able to do good in the spiritual Dimensions of our souls, which earthly fathers cannot do. James writes it this way. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like a shifting shadow. He chose to give us birth 
through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James 1, verse 17 and 18. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we praise him? He goes on. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. What is this? I'll tell you what. This is family talk, isn't it? New birth into a living hope, an inheritance. Hmm. Family, family, family. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. You know, where nothing can happen to the inheritance. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and following. Shielded. The treasure is shielded in heaven. For the Father has built a box around his people. Nothing can happen to you. Nothing can happen to your inheritance. Jesus put it this way. I tell you the truth. It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father. Who gave you the true bed from heaven. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. John 6 verse 32. In other words. Earthly fathers may put food on the table. To feed their hungry children. But God the Father puts food in our souls. That sustains life eternal. The food of Christ. Whose broken body is the bread we need. To revive and feed our dead spirits. And that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. The unbeliever does not have this work of God in their life. But the believer does. Not for anything we've done. Perish the thought that we were somehow super-duper people, and that's why God chose us. I've read enough texts this morning to show us we were not super-duper people. We were the filth of the earth. I almost look at it this way. We're the dregs of society, not the cream of the crop. But in saving us, he's brought, the, brought us to the cream of the crop. He's exalted us as his children. John's benediction is a fitting summary to today's thoughts of God. What does he say? He says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we, we should be called the children of God. Wow, think about that. The likes of us should be called the children of God. And that, John says, that is what we are. Oh, wow. The reason the world, he goes on, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now, right now, we are children of God. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John 3, verse 1 and 4. 
So we take our definition of fatherhood from God. And thankfully there is a host of earthly fathers who have done this. And the pattern of their lives has been an inspiration to their children as well. Father Abraham taught us to trust in God by faith. And he fathered a whole nation of believers. I'm talking about the spiritual nation. Father Moses taught us how to intercede for one another when we sin. And on two separate occasions, he prayed Israel to safety from the brink of annihilation because of their sin. You remember those occasions. One of those occasions, God said, Moses, just step aside. Step aside, boy. Step aside. I'm going to wipe them all out. I've had it up to here with my sinning people. And Moses pleaded in prayer. You know, Lord, if you do that, the Egyptians are going to hear about it. And they're going to say, what kind of a God is that? Their God let them out into the wilderness so he could kill them. We could have done that for him. Father Zechariah taught us to ask God for the impossible things in life. And by faith, he and Elizabeth had a son in their old age, which was an impossible prayer request. And John the Baptist was the end product. I mean, if you're going to have a son, let him be the greatest prophet that ever was, right? Father Joseph taught us how to trust God's word over our carnal reasoning when he thought Mary had been unfaithful to him. And when he quickly heeded God's word in the night, fleeing with Jesus to Egypt to preserve him from Herod's slaughter. He married Mary on the merit of God's word about him and her. And he preserved Mary and the child by fleeing to Egypt. To this we might add our own more recent spiritual fathers who have set their children ungodly paths, a biological father who modeled before us the things of God, or perhaps a favorite pastor who faithfully taught us the things of God, an elder in the church whose example has been one of fidelity and clear direction to things eternal, a Sunday school teacher whose influence on our young lives has been immeasurable. I can think back to my Sunday school teacher. A Christian neighbor, a Christian churchman who stepped in where our earthly father failed us and led us to the feet of Christ, both in word and deed. Any man can become a biological father. Only the godly man can become a spiritual father. So my, and my charge today is this. May we as men strive for the latter and allow it to govern the former. 
We not only make babies, but me, we be the human instruments of God used to produce children for his family as well. We need spiritual dads in our day. We do. There's many voices out there that our kids listen to. Some of them are politicians, some of them are rock stars, some of them are the dads of other families that don't necessarily know the Lord. On and on it goes. What are we going to do as fathers? We need to be the fathers that point people to Christ, the great Savior of our souls. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word so precious to us. Thank you for our fathers today that love the Lord, trying to set a good example for their kids. I pray that you will help us to do that because in ourselves, what are we? We are sinners. Saved by grace, yes, but sinners nonetheless. And sometimes we act in sinful ways and we do sinful things and we say sinful things and we do them. And our children may get a mixed message and they might think of us as being hypocrites because we say one thing and do another. So Lord, remove that hypocrisy from us. Help us to be genuine fathers who love the Lord first and foremost. Love his word. And then love his people, including our own children, loving them into the kingdom of God by grace. Help us, Lord, be with our sinful world today and all those fathers who hate their children and who treat them cruelly. May you forgive them and may you save them and may you change their hearts. And for the fathers of our nation, give us political fathers who have a moral anchor for their behavior and actions. Keep America true to you. Where we sin, forgive us. Bring us back. You did it with Israel. You brought them back as the nation to repentance and faith. Lord, bring our nation back to repentance and faith. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal number 560. 560. Okay, Joe's going to lead us. 560 in the brown hymn. Let's stand. Let's stand. <clears throat>
certainly do have a lot to thank the Lord for, don't we? Especially in America, where we enjoy the various freedoms that we have, none, not the least of which is freedom of religion. Freedom to worship God where we want, how we want, in the way we want. That, you might think that is sustained for us by the Bill of Rights. No, it's not. It's sustained for us by God Almighty. Yes. What's written on a paper or in the Bill of Rights can be unwritten. And there have been attempts to downplay various amendments of the Constitution. The Second Amendment on the right to bear arms has been under attack many times, and there's been many advocates that said, well, let's just scrap the amendment totally. Well, what about freedom of religion and freedom of speech? That's been under attack as well. Well, you can have freedom of speech as long as it's not too controversial, as long as you don't bring God into this situation, as long as you're not quoting scripture. What do you think those, those things are? Those are attacks upon what we think are our rights. Our framer said inalienable rights given to us by the creator. Man didn't invent these. They were given us by God. But man can re rebel against things. Men can torture. Men can imprison. Men can take away. So we need to be prayerful and thankful to God for our country Amen. and pray for our leaders. Pray for those that are in legislators. Make sure that they're up on the truth and don't allow politics to intervene in any way that would take away our liberties. Well, today's Father's Day. As you leave, as you exit, there's a gift in a little basket out here. George was asking me, was there something wrong with fathers? I said, what, is, what, what do you mean? He says, all those little gifts in the package are deodorants, which they are. <laughs> are you trying to say something to us fathers? No, I'm trying to say that we had a budget. <laughs> and we have to find things that will fit within the budget so we can bless all of you with a gift. It's just a remembrance. It's just saying we love our fathers and want to remember them. So help yourself as you leave. We are dismissed. Thank you. Especially if they